A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Saca, qué golazo del equipo de Arteta, como tocó de izquierda a derecha. Martín Odegaard tenía el pase fácil, pero dijo, ¿para qué darlo fácil si lo puedo dar por el medio? Apertura para Saca y el golazo con la derecha. Llega el tercero para el Arsenal. Is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you and. Wow. Yeah, that's a message we can all get behind. I think so. <laughs> oh, the Magpies vanquished this weekend. Obliterated. Exactly. May they never dive bomb us again. Uh, Lovely, a lovely, lovely, lovely evening's football and the perfect antidote to the midweek game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, I think. And it was a lot of fun, obviously, because of what happened uh, against Porto and the, the anxiety that that performance and result caused. But to sort of just get back to what we've been doing in the Premier League against this particular opposition as well, I really did think it was interesting that that before the game, Mikel Arteta was asked about it. You know, is the previous game against Newcastle on your minds? And he was like, yeah, you know, but there's history with every club. There's a story with every club, blah, blah, blah. And then afterwards, Martin Odegaard, I think, basically admitted that that the manager had used this in the same way that he used the uh, lovely kickabout with the boys tweet from Ivan Tony that time that's sort of motivation to get to get his players fired up for this one as if they needed to be anyway you know what i mean i think there is a there is um something about this team where you know, they remember they remember things and they try and put things right they don't always get to do it but they do their best and i think that is part of the mindset of this group but but it was certainly an aspect of you know, what went into the pregame. And of course, I think the club as well really tried to 
to ramp up the atmosphere, you know, to make the Emirates, you know, an in inverted commas a fortress, et cetera, et cetera. So it was all very pleasing that those elements came together with a with a great performance, lots of goals, and ultimately Eddie Howe and his gimp assistant being very, very sad at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm right in saying that it was our win over Newcastle last season at St. James's Park, where afterwards, uh, I think Aaron Ramsdale let it slip that Arteta had used a clip from All or Nothing to help motivate the team. So, you know, there's always been this kind of historic uh, back and forth and beef with Newcastle over the last couple of years. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Arteta did something similar in the dressing room this time, you know, using what had happened at St. James's Park this season to kind of fuel that sense of injustice. I think you're right to mention kind of the kickoff time and the build-up maybe playing into uh, the occasion. You know, it was a really good atmosphere. Arsenal had been doing their two-for-one pre-game offer, which I think lots of people were in the ground taking up early on. Yeah. Um, there was fire, Andrew. Ooh, fire when the players came out on the pitch. Um, a light show. It, do you know what? I know it was a big game against Newcastle, but I almost felt like this feels like a dummy run potentially for the Champions League knockout night, you know, in terms mm. of the the kind of atmosphere that we'll be looking to create when Porto come. And if we get further into that competition, the kind of pomp and circumstance of it all. Um, I, I felt like, you know, we might be seeing what we see on those nights too. And the crowd really responded and got into it and were at it from the first whistle. And so were the players. So it all just fed each other into this kind of, frenzied atmosphere and a a brilliant performance ensued. Yeah, I mean, look, you you can talk before a game about, um, you know, wanting the crowd behind you and and urging the crowd to to sort of create the noise and bring the noise and, and the atmosphere. And I think that's absolutely fine. And I think the Arsenal fans, as we've seen over the last 18 months, two years in particular, have really, really responded to that. You know, there's a lot of, or there was uh, a lot of discussion, debate about atmosphere at various points in this season. You know, I think the eight o'clock kickoff certainly helps where people have you know been able to have a couple of beers beforehand and, and get into the stadium. But, but what's also important with that is that the the players as you mentioned they have to be they have to be part of it too right mm. so there's there's always this uh dynamic about whether or not um the crowd should lift the players or the players should lift the crowd and you know i think sometimes it should be one sometimes it should be the other other times it works with a with a kind of synergy and i think you could see from the very start arsenal were determined to to just sort of get the crowd going by the way that they played kickoff david raya pumps it kai havertz wins a good aerial you know gets there first we win a corner we have a chance and I think that absolutely 100% set the tone for for the first half in particular. It was like, here we are, you know, you can do your fucking pre-match huddle all you want, but we're here to take this game to you right away. Totally. Yeah, it's a symbiotic relationship, isn't it, between fans and players, and the players certainly did their part. I mean, we flew out of the blocks and... You know, those first opening minutes are kind of a statement of intent, aren't they, in any game? And actually, I thought the way in which we started the intensity and the intent was reminiscent of 
um, not just recent weeks, but sort of the way we played for much of last season as well. That mm. was so characteristic of this team, the way they flew out the blocks and, and began at that pace. And yeah, we, we did that and Newcastle really struggled to live with it. Yeah, they did. I mean, again, Havertz was involved um, in the early minutes of the game where he chased down the goalkeeper, almost caught the goalkeeper and then did catch the defender. And I think when you're the when you're the opposition team, you're away from home and and you're getting absolutely closed down like that in the opening minutes. Mm. I, I think it sort of puts you on the back foot straight away. It was really important for Arsenal to to set that tone because you know you, we know how Newcastle want to play, right? Yeah, we know that they want to be physical. We know that they're probably going to defend. They'll try and hit us with some fast breaks and. Arsenal just did not allow them to do any of the things that they wanted to do. Like, not one in that opening half hour in particular. You know, I don't know that I've seen a first half of football quite as dominant. And I know we played really well against Liverpool in the first half of the Cup game and really well against Liverpool in the first half of the league game. But I think this was a different level altogether because, you know, Newcastle, they have this reputation. They have this idea of how they're they're going to try and play against you. And they just could not implement any single aspect of their game plan. And I think the players and the manager deserve huge credit for that because, you know, coming into this off the back of a midweek game, it requires a lot of energy to do that. Well, also not just any midweek game, but a game against an opposition who kind of did managed to stifle us relatively effectively. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure I won't have been alone in thinking that Eddie Howe will have been, you know, watching that and uh, rubbing his hands together, thinking, well, that's what I'll be implementing at yeah, the weekend. Exactly. But yeah, yeah. we just didn't let them settle. And, uh, yeah, I agree. It was totally dominant. I mean, there was one moment right at the end of the half where it looked like Almiron might have a chance. I think it was actually offside in the end and mm. Ryan smothered it anyway. But smothering was kind of the... The word of the day. I mean, it, it was a suffocating Arsenal performance. Um, and Newcastle just did not have a moment to breathe. And no. uh, yeah, it, it was total dominance, which we know is what Mikel Arteta wants. They put up a stat, or they mentioned it certainly in commentary on on, uh, on TV. In the 26th minute, 53% of the game had been played in the, in the Newcastle final third. Mm. I mean, that's remarkable. Yeah, if you'd taken a kind of average position map at that moment in the game, I think there's every chance it would have had Gabriel and Saliba in the Newcastle half. Well, they did the average position map at half time, right? Right. Every single Newcastle's player average position was in their own half. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yeah. Uh, David Rye is probably something like 30 yards from his own goal, I would imagine. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, it, it was a very, very one-sided affair. And, you know, Newcastle... I mean, look, they've had a lot of problems of late, but, you know, I've never seen them put under the sort of this degree of pressure. It was interesting. I was talking to, I mentioned this uh, on my video, but I've got a mate, Simon, who's a Newcastle fan, and he's been dreading this game for weeks because they've had a lot of problems with injuries and defensively. And he was saying, you know, I think Arsenal are just going to absolutely tear us apart. And, he wasn't wrong, you know. I, I think this was kind of a nightmare fixture for them and we we made it so, you know, we manifested that and it was a brilliant performance. Yeah, it really was. I mean, the the starting lineup, which we didn't really talk about, there was one change 
with Jorginho coming in for Leandro Trossard, which wasn't at all unexpected. Mikel Arteta loves a Jorginho against Newcastle, doesn't he? Mm. Well, I think he loves a Jorginho in, in most big games, to yeah. be honest. And, I, and actually, I wonder, you know, on reflection, if he, he might feel he, he could have started him in, in Portugal. You know, I, I understand why he went with the team that he did, but um, Jorginho has been so good for him in some of these big matches that, uh, yeah, I wonder if, if that is in his mind. Do you think he, he was saving him for this game? You know, because I think yeah, he maybe. has had some fitness issues and, you know, maybe he backed the team that had done well to do the job out in, in Porto, which didn't turn out to be the case knowing that he wanted to use Jorginho in this game. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was a reflection of that that Porto game, which made him decide this. But, you know, w- when I think back to, uh, you know, the win that you mentioned earlier at St. James's Park, mm. he left Thomas Partey on the bench that day and played Jorginho. Mm. You know, so th- there's something about the way, I don't know if it's like, it's too reductive to say he's like a good luck charm or whatever, but... I think he he uses his particular skill set very well. I mean, we're we're talking about him, so we might as well talk about you know what he did and how he did it and how he helped Arsenal play. Because what what I think is interesting is remember the game against Liverpool, and and we talked about this a little bit, and, and we talked about where Jorginho was playing, where he would pop up on the left hand side at times. Mm-hmm with Rice sitting as as kind of the deeper of the two. In this particular game, it was the other way around. You know, Rice was playing much higher up the pitch. He was excellent too, in fairness. You know, um, the way he got his foot in, the way he nicked the ball high up the pitch really, really helped to to smother Newcastle and to not allow them to get out of their own half. You know, every time they tried to play it forward, they were just swarmed and, and Rice in particular was was really, really good at that. But I think behind him, Jorginho is this kind of fulcrum, dare I say, a kind of metronomic Arteta-esque deep-lying midfielder that we saw Arteta do that job many times for Arsenal to very good effect, where he just had the touches, made the passes, kept it moving. And, you know, I think he was really, really good in in this game. And, you know, the highest compliment I think I can pay him is that I wish he was a few years younger. Yeah, sure. And, 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 you know, maybe it's not realistic, I spoke about the Porto game, to expect that level of performance twice in, you know, four days or whatever it was from him at this stage in his career. And, And maybe it's as much about, managing his minutes mm. as anything else. Um, but I agree he was brilliant. I agree he's been very good largely since he came into the club. I think particularly this season, he seems to have a sort of even greater understanding of what Arteta wants from him. And uh, I think that the style of the team suits him more. Uh, it was interesting to see his differing role, you know, in this game, playing as the deepest of the midfield when we have seen him use further ahead as well. That shows, I think, his versatility, his adaptability, his intelligence. I think he's got a great understanding with Declan Rice. Mm. You know, whenever you talk about a midfield, you've got to talk about partnerships and all the great Arsenal teams, you know, Vieira Petit, Vieira Gilberto, whatever it might be, um, partnerships have been key. And sometimes we've had to have kind of multiple partnerships, you know, Vieira was also good next to Edu or Ray Parler, but that 
yeah. intuition that exists between two players is so important, even if they don't play together every week. I think Rice and Jorginho clearly have a good understanding, you know, on the pitch. Yeah. And I know Rice has spoken about Jorginho acting as a bit of a mentor for him off the pitch, but clearly that relationship translates too. So I think in some ways they bring the best out of each other, which is what you want in your midfield. I guess so. I mean, it was quite funny just to hear you rattle off those combinations, Vieira and Vieira and Vieira and Vieira <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and maybe Rice is the sort of the Vieira analogue in, in that sense that, you know, Jorginho you know, is in the, the sort of September of his career, right? Uh, yeah. And it is a position that we are going to have to think about probably during the summer and we'll have to wait and see who it is that that Arsenal uh, target and what kind of a player it is that are, that Arsenal target. Um, you know, I think uh, Jorginho's, Jorginho's qualities and experience, um, I'm not saying they're easy to, uh, to replace or anything like that, but I think it's the combination of those things. Uh, his experience is really important in big games like this as well, isn't it? Where he's been there, he's done it, um, unfortunately, with uh, one of the worst bastard teams that exists in the entire world, but we'll come to them maybe a little bit later on, but also done it for Italy at international level. And, you know, more and more as we head towards the the sort of the run-in and the, as the pressure builds, having a player with that kind of experience, whether he's on the pitch or not on the pitch, I think is absolutely vital um, to our chances of, of achieving what we, what we want to achieve this season. Yeah. And even when he's not on the pitch, he's very involved. I yeah. mean, even in Portugal on Wednesday night, I could see him sort of, you know, <laughs> passing instructions to corner takers and all kinds of things like that. Um, even when he's on the touchline, he, he's very much part of the group. So I think it's invaluable really to have that, especially for a team who largely haven't been there and done it and won the big prizes. Um, having those those one or two that have been there, mm. I think is really helpful. I mean, and, and the guy... You know, another guy who has is Kai Havertz. And, you know, although he's not necessarily talked about as a, a leader in quite the same way, I do think the benefit is of his experience and his success um, hopefully will transmit to the team as well. Yes. OK, well, let's uh, let's talk about how Arsenal um, beat Newcastle you know, <laughs> w- with the goals that we scored. Another set piece, more brilliant movement from Gabriel. It's a little bit scrappy from Newcastle. I think it's actually a good save from Loris Carries from the initial header, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But they got themselves in, in a bit of a mess and the ball is over the line. But, you know, it's again, it's, you know, as we saw even in midweek against Porto, Arsenal's reputation from set pieces is now such that I think teams are basically shitting themselves every time yeah. we get a free kick or a corner. You know, and and you can say that that might be irrelevant to the goal that we scored, but I'm not sure it is because you've got players on the ground just whacking their legs around like, you know, upturned turtles. And it went in and uh, I think it was off Botman. Livermento kicked it off Botman and into the goal. Yeah, I I think these set pieces do, as you suggest, become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Um, I I think teams are, are worried about it. They're probably guilty of overthinking of a bit of panic at times but again key to it is a good initial delivery Mm. right Uh, without that you've got nothing and you know ball comes in Gabriel meets it it's bundled into the net and Arsenal crucially I think it was about 19th minute something like that you know you're always looking at that first 20 minutes saying 
can you get your opening goal there? Um, and as I recall, Arsenal just about did and sets the pattern really for the rest of the game. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, Carius, I think, was standing behind the line as well. Sure, the David Ospina, the David Ospina uh, school of goalkeeping. Yes. But, um, you know, 1-0 from a set piece. And I think that then um, that then just sort of made Newcastle even more inhibited. Um, I mean, we saw examples between the, the first goal and the second goal of how Newcastle tried to play out and Arsenal just... Arsenal just swarmed them, got the ball back. Um, there was a chance, I think, for Ben White. Um, he went through. I think if he pulled it on, you know, pulled off a shot with his left foot, he could have troubled the goalkeeper. Mm. Um, and then we get the uh, the second goal, and this is this is actually a really really lovely goal. Martinelli's movement across the Newcastle back line is superb. The pass from Jorginho is superb, and I think Martinelli does really really well to take that ball, you know, away from goal, going away from where he actually wants to be, but pulling it back for for Havertz to slot home. Yeah, I think so. And uh, you mentioned Ben White, by the way, and his movement and you know the, the role he's playing right now in the team being a little bit different and actually he he's almost in the same position as Martinelli he makes a run uh inside as well when Jorginho loops that ball over the top and mm. I think if if he doesn't meet Martinelli's stride perfectly he might be there to take it on but it's a, a lovely pass lovely move and a goal for Kai Havertz a, a striker's goal you know yes. into the six yard box puts it away um was really pleased to see him get that one yeah, I mean, he's, I think it's seven goals now so far this sure, season, yeah, which yeah. is, you know, as many as Granite Xhaka got last season. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, things going in the right direction for him. And I know there was a moment in the second half, which we'll come to, of course. But but overall, I think the level of his performance, as we said, maybe last week is is improving. Um, he looks more decisive. I think that that movement that you see from him to score that goal wasn't there in the early part of the season. He might have just not stood still, but I think he anticipated it very well, shifted his run quite quickly and, uh, and put it away. And, you know, this is a big game and a big goal. You know, 2-0 makes it a different game. I know there are issues with, with 2-0 um, at times, but... There have been, been issues before now against Newcastle. Well, yeah, I didn't want to say. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is, it's a big goal at a big moment in the game because it was only, what, three, four minutes after we'd scored the first one. We're now 2-0 ahead. And, you know, Newcastle's job, difficult as it was already, is now even more so. Yeah, and you could feel the crowd kind of relax around that time. You know, they felt that we were just in cruise control at that moment. And, and on the subject of Kai, you know, obviously he's playing up front in this game. And it's interesting, I, you know, I gather that the, the commentators on TV were sort of debating his best position. And certainly it's something I've done at times and said, you know, I, I like him up front as opposed to midfield. But I think maybe we're all sort of missing the point a little bit there. You know, we spoke about Granit Xhaka for all his qualities. You know, you couldn't do with him what Arsenal are doing with Havertz at this point in time. You couldn't use him in midfield on Wednesday and up front on a Saturday. Um, and I, I think that that versatility, that utility, is as much part of why Arteta wanted him, probably, as anything else at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, there was a good piece, um, I don't know if you've read it, from from Michael Cox, Zona Marking, mm. You know, about players who are, it's sort of uh, what he calls a new position, not quite a nine, not quite a 
10, not quite an 8, sort of like an 8.5, I think is, is what he said. And he, he highlighted Havertz as, as one of those players where, you know, I think you you when you do try and picture where it is that he's going to play, it is sort of in that final third. It is sometimes central. It is sometimes maybe a little bit closer to where Declan Rice is playing at times. But it is a different role, certainly, from, from what Shaka did last season. Yeah. Cox yeah. is a fraud. Don't you remember me saying he Kai Havertz is an 8.75 on the show uh, a few months ago? No, I don't. I, I don't. Sorry. No, I apologise. Well, listen. Absolutely stolen. Okay, well, hang on. Let's get the lawyers on it straight away. Yeah, you know, yeah, no yeah, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> sue all the legal uh, trademarking. You were too busy, doing, too busy getting yeah, I, was, your, I had, I had my eyes doing, elsewhere yeah. at that point in time. You took your eyes no, off the ball. He is right. He is right. I mean, it's a, it is a... I, I just, yeah, I suppose I just mean... It's almost redundant, I think, kind of arguing about where he should be playing at this point in time because, Mm. you know, the way he operates in both roles is so kind of multifaceted that it almost, even the Michael's sort of 8.5, it doesn't quite capture the kind of nuances of it, you know? I agree with that, but it is a, it's just. You know, maybe it takes a while to get used to certain things um, and these developments that we're seeing mm. in, in the way players are utilized. And, and people, you know, will judge a player based on X criteria, based on where they're playing in the pitch or the number on their back or whatever it might be. But maybe it requires us as, as fans to, to think about things a little bit differently, you know. Yeah, because the, the, the great coaches innovate, don't they? Well, and sometimes it. we see it through the prism of the past, you know, we're quite locked into, well, that's what a right back does, or that's what a central midfielder does, or that's what a striker does. And it it takes time for kind of opinions to kind of acclimatise to, you know, the way in which football evolves. But I think Havertz, yeah, he may come to be seen as an example of that. Well, I mean, I I do think some of Mikel Arteta's early season positivity about Kai Havertz was about boosting his confidence, right? Yeah. You know, it took him a while to settle. I think it's really fair to say that that there were some issues with with confidence and, you know, maybe the price tag and maybe I'm coming from Chelsea and this is Arsenal and they all hate me because I used to play for Chelsea. You know, that you, you have to win people over to an extent. But I also think that in general, what Kai Havertz has done on the pitch this season is stuff that Mikel Arteta wants him to do and will have wanted him to do. Like, I think he's always looking for every player to to be able to give more and uh, do better and provide more end product. But I think in general, what he has been doing, you know, has not been the sort of stuff that Arteta will say, well, you know, I'm a bit worried about this. I think he's worked really hard. He hasn't always been effective. But I think in general, Arteta will have been pretty satisfied with what he's got from Havertz. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. I agree. With that. Is the only complaint about the second half or the first half rather that we did not score more goals? There was a great chance for Martinelli, brilliant play from Odegaard and, and Saka uh, down yeah. the right hand side. I mean, that would have been one of the goals of the season if he'd thumped that header into the top top of the net. Holy crap! Yeah, I think he was just a fraction under it, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, like it was. I, I made that quite a difficult header to execute, but yeah, it was a lovely moment. And there was one where. 
I think Odegaard maybe nicked the ball off them high mm. up the pitch uh, and maybe we could have made a little bit more of it. Defender got uh, back pretty well, though, in fairness. Yeah. It, was, it was a good defensive intervention. So, uh, But yeah, I mean, there may have been one or two more goals there for us, but uh, we needn't have worried. We were, we were to get them in the second half. We were. I mean, it should have been 3-0 very early in the, in the second half. Um, mm. Is really, that the Havertz one? That's the Havertz one. I mean, it's a really good move. Uh, from our, so I think it's Bakayo Saka who takes the ball on and um, like he, he does everything. It's everything but the finish in in that situation, isn't it? Because his his movement, he stays on side. The pass is really good from Martinelli, and you know, unfortunately, dragged his shot a little bit wide. But um, yeah, I mean that that should have been three 0 That should have been game over early on. Yeah, it was a really nice move, Raya to Saka to Martinelli to Havertz, um, to the advertising hoardings. I, I don't know if you've seen, if you've, if you've watched back Gabriel, Gabriel Martinelli's reaction uh, to the ball going wide is, is quite something. Uh, let's just say he uh, was disappointed. I'm just going to have <laughs> a look like here. looks like he's been shot by a sniper, essentially. He Hang just on falls now. to the ground. I'm just going to watch it back here one second. Um, boom, boom, boom. Come on, come on. Let's go forward. It's the response of a man who would like to improve his assist numbers. Let's put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone full platoon there, hasn't he? He's like it's Willem Dafoe in platoon. <laughs> Just like literally throws himself to the ground, hands on his head. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, I'm sure he had some conciliatory words for, for Kai afterwards. But uh, yeah, look. <laughs> he nearly for, took the referee out as well. I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, I've been full of praise for for Kai and his performance, I, I do have to say for balance, like that is the sort of chance I'd really like to see him take. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. 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 I agree. I mean, he should be scoring there. There's no two ways about it. You know? Yeah. And I sort of feel like that would be a true mark of a kind of shift in his confidence and mentality for him to sort of stride through and bury the ball in that situation. Yeah. Uh, maybe we're, you know, we've come a long way, but maybe we're not quite no, there. We still yet. have some, yeah, exactly. We still have some, some way to go, but you know, on, on the plus side, he was in that position. He made the run. It was lovely football from Arsenal, just missing the finish, but you know, I think he can do better. I think it's well within his capability to do better. Um, you know, that would have been a big contribution. Two goals against Newcastle, but... Yeah. Um, well, quite what Newcastle's defence are up to at that point in time, I don't know. Kieran Trippier just running back with his hand in the air, despite there being no semblance of an offside line whatsoever. Mm. Um, again, would have been funny for that to go in, just to sort of have that over Trippier. But, you know, I think I think we made our point. I, I like the way that sort of midway through the... Uh, midway through the first half... Trippier just sat down. He needed a rest. He just was in the in the penalty box, just sitting down because he was just shattered. The way Arsenal, you know, had pulled him apart, uh, him and the rest of them apart, of course. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Newcastle had a couple of moments, I guess you would say. Um, there was a a chance for Alexander Isak where he went through and. Raya did well to come out and mm -hmm. um, get in the way. There was a shot from Gordon again. Raya, good hands, held on to it well. You know, one of those where if you spill it, maybe it becomes a, an opportunity on the rebound. And there was another Isaac shot, uh, which went over the bar. And then Newcastle made, they made, did they make a triple change? 
I think it was, or a double change anyway. They took um, Isaac and Almiron off and put um, Jacob Murphy and Harvey Barnes on, and within a minute, Arsenal had made it 3 0. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but you, you know, you're right to highlight those moments from Raya. Safe hands, big hands. Did you see this story in the Telegraph? <laughs> yeah. he, they did a, uh, in their print edition, they did a life size picture of David Raya's hands. So you could hold your hands up to David Rye's hands for scale. What were you, how were yours in comparison? Did you do it? I have not. I've not. I didn't get to see hard copy because I was in Portugal at the time. Ah. Um, but I. I don't know. I hear his hands are very, very large, intimidatingly large. So I almost be wary to try it myself. Um, Fair enough. But but yeah. Then we then we go up the other end of the pitch and uh, get ourselves a goal. A lovely goal. This one. Yep. Interception from Havertz. He left it for Odegaard. Odegaard to Rice. First time to Havertz. Havertz to Saka. Oh, where is he going to go? Is he going to come back on his left foot? He probably is. Oh, I can't do anything about it. And now it's a goal. Oh, well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's, he's making a habit of, habit of it. He's switching it up mm. week by week. You know, a couple of games ago against West Ham, came inside on the left, buried it. Then he went to Burnley, thought, well, I'll bamboozle the guy, go on the right. Mm-hmm. Back against Newcastle. This time we go inside on the left. I mean, if I'm the defender next week for Sheffield United, I suppose I'm looking for a goal on the outside off the right foot. But yeah, I mean, his capacity to do either is amazing. And um, I, what I like about this goal, and something I think that has been a real hallmark of the way we've played since since that little break in Dubai, you know, I think everyone's looking for the clues, you know, what's changed for Arsenal. Um, and I think it's probably as simple as, you know, confidence and the ball's going in the net when it wasn't before, but we are getting a lot of men mm. into the box. Um, you know, Declan Rice in this move looks like he's playing as a centre forward, does a bit of hold up yeah. play, ends up, you know, on the edge of the six yard box. I think by the time Saka puts it in, there's four players in the penalty area, fifth and sixth on the edge, waiting for a pullback. That is something that we're doing really, really well at this point in time. And, yeah. and we're reaping the war- that rewards. Is, yeah, I'm just watching again, Declan Rice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could if if, if he had Kai Havertz's number on the back of his shirt, you wouldn't think anything of it. You know, it's a bit hold-up play, and then we're running to the penalty box. I mean, it's classic centre-forward stuff from yeah. Rice. So it's... Um- 16 goals and 13 assists for Bakayo Saka so far this season. Is there anything we can say about him that we haven't already said? Not really. I don't think so. I mean... Do we need to get, like, uh, on the tannoy and and uh, <laughs> discuss... You were on that flight. Yeah, I, yeah, I was on that flight. And um, you can't miss Rio. I mean, he's a big guy. Sometimes when you see these footballers, you, you, you're a bit... Sometimes they're smaller than you expect, and mm-hmm. then other times they're much taller than you expect. And he was really tall in a kind of white velour tracksuit. So and he was the last guy on the plane. So velour. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, let's just say the Arsenal fans let him know they weren't too happy about his comments about Kaisaka not being world-class. Um and in fairness to him, I'm sure people have seen the clip on social media. He got on the tannoy at the end and reiterated his point and took it all in quite good spirits. Um, well, I mean, what else are you going to do on a plane full of Arsenal fans? It's like <laughs> That's true, one, yeah. one Rio versus 240 Arsenal fans. You know, you're outnumbered there in a big way and he's no fucking John Wick. Yeah, true. Uh, even in a white tracksuit. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he was quite ready to take on 200 Arsenal fans. But um, yeah, so listen... 
I mean, my reaction to that whole thing, by the way, is sort of that I sort of just think the distinction of world class is fairly meaningless and I don't really get exercised about whether someone is or isn't. I sort of don't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. I'd rather look at those numbers that you've just told me of his goals and assists and his contribution to the team and know his quality based on that. Yeah. I mean, that the numbers speak volumes. Yeah, they speak for themselves, yeah, don't they? They sure do. They sure uh, do. And yeah. it was a brilliant goal. I, probably my favourite goal of the night, that one. And he's got a habit of doing that at the moment, Saka. In games with lots of goals, he keeps scoring my favourite. Uh, probably a good thing. Well, long may that last. Um, yeah. Fourth goal... Jakob Kivior played a lovely pass over the top for Leandro Trossard to run on. And from there, we got the corner from which Kivior scored. TV were determined that this was going to be an own goal because it hit a, a Newcastle player on the way through. But you know, anyone could see that the ball was uh, on target anyway. I was really happy for him, actually, because he's, you know, had a few ups and downs, I think it's fair to say, since he arrived. You know, mm-hmm. a few uh, performances that weren't necessarily convincing. I'm not saying he was bad, but, you know, since um, since the role has been shifted a little bit at left back while he's been there, as as we talked about last week, I think he's been really solid, really effective. And, you know, when players like Gabriel and Saliba rightly get a lot of attention for how strong they are at, at set pieces, having somebody else is re- just really beneficial as well, isn't it? It's not just those two you have to worry about. It's a good movement again, good header, and, you know, deserve the goal, I think. Yeah, and having that extra target, you know, that unusually tall left-back who you can put in the penalty box for corners is partly what enables you to let Declan Rice take them. mm and it was a lovely delivery again from Rice. You know, really nice flat delivery into that near post. Kivior attacks it, gets his head on it. Yeah, it takes a deflection. But it was a really nice moment for him. And sort of, I think, um, sort of sets the seal on his contribution in recent weeks. You know, he's, mm. he's been much more part of things, much more part of the team. He's played a, an important role. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll be feeling much happier and much more confident about his football at this point in time. Um and, and that goal will will have helped him too. Yeah. So, I mean, that was absolutely 100% that, you know. Yeah. Uh, I know we've had 4-0 issues against Newcastle, but it was never going to go any other way. Mikel Arteta made changes again. You know, one of the benefits of winning games this handsomely is the fact that you can you can take players off. Um, he was able to, uh, to take Saka off, uh, Havertz off, Odegaard off. Odegaard on a yellow card, by the way, from pretty early on in the game, similar to mm. Declan Rice against Porto. Um, you know, to be fair, both of them managed those yellow cards very well. Yeah, it was early. It was early. I remember thinking that, but uh, obviously I was in the stadium and I've not seen it back, but it did look like it, it probably was a yellow card, the Odegaard one, to, to I me mean, anyway. Yeah, it probably was. It was one where, you know, he should have stayed on his feet, I think, yeah. but I'm not sure. You know, I think Almiron uh, is the guy who was fouled. Um, I think he made the most of it as well. It's one of those where, you know, he could have just had a quick word. It wasn't dangerous. It was just a little bit late and yeah, there wasn't a, a great maybe. deal of contact, but it was it was cl- a bit clumsy. But yeah, yeah, I, can't well, really- I, I agree. He, he managed that well because Odegaard's role, you know, it, it is a, a very physical and, and combative one at times mm. um, that involves, you know, a lot of pressing and trying to win the ball back in midfield areas. So, uh, 
yeah, I mean, again, that's his maturity, isn't it? And he, mm. he trod that line beautifully. Um, Newcastle did get a goal back. They did. They did. It was a bit tired, I think, some of the defending from from Arsenal in the build-up to this goal. You know, mm. um, I think Emile Smith-Rowe, having come on as a substitute, you can see in the, the replay, as, uh, as Willock is running away, you can see Smith-Rowe kind of going, oh, fuck, shit. Fuck, fuck, yeah. fuck. You know, that, that was his guy. Um, and he just sort of switched off and allowed Willock to, to run off him. Uh, did he mean to do exactly that with his header? I'm not 100% sure. But... Um, no. I, I'm going to go with no, actually. Yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> uh, well, at least, but listen, that's what Joe Willock does, makes good runs and gets on the end of stuff, right? And, mm. um yeah, it's funny actually. Yeah, when you the camera cuts to Smith Rowe and he he does look a bit disappointed. I'm sure Mikel Arteta will be relaxed about it though. Um, oh yeah, yeah, he loves yeah, it when yeah, players, yeah. you know, no consequences. I'm sure. Um, well, I mean, he he did his best to make up for it by almost scoring a goal up the other end. Some good work by by Reese Nelson, um, who who won the ball uh, out in the touchline and and created. I, mean, I don't think it was his pass, final pass anyway for for Smith Rowe, but it fell for Smith Rowe and. Uh, Big Dan Byrne got back to to block it on the line. It would have been five one, and that would have perhaps made up for for Smith Rowe's um, little lapse in concentration there. And it would have been nice, actually, for him to to get a goal. You know, his last goal was in April twenty twenty two against Chelsea. So uh, yeah. it's it's been a long time for him, and you could see there was a measure of frustration about. Um, about you know that 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 clearance because it could have been a moment that you know could have been very useful for him. But what I will say is that that in the cameos that he's made, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks and months, that he's he's quite often been in and around the positions where he has scored goals from. So I'm hoping it'll come. Yeah, he's had some near misses, hasn't he? Um, in those little cameos, and this might have been the nearest yet. Basically, that that clearance off the line was roundly booed by the North Bank because <laughs> we were all so annoyed about it. Um, I, I, when Emil Smith Rowe eventually gets that goal, uh, it's going to get quite the reception. I, I sort of, I'm sure he'd love it as soon as possible. I'd like it to be at the Emirates Stadium because the fans are mm. willing it, and you can feel them willing it. Yeah, just desperate for him to make that that contribution. So, look, a really, really really impressive performance from this very good Arsenal team. Um, week after week, we're sending statements and messages or, you know, however, however you want to uh, call them, you know, about our title credentials and about what we're capable of and about what we're, we're trying to do with this season. Like the, the reaction since Dubai, six wins in a row, how many goals is it now? Five, ten, fucking 24, 20, mm. whatever goals. You know, barely any shots on target against. Defensively brilliant, offensively brilliant. What what we've got now is the control that's been the sort of buzzword of the first half, but with a final third efficiency that I think will be very, very pleasing for Mikel Arteta. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's nothing to disagree with there, really. Um I think we are the form team in the Premier League. Uh, I think we're playing the best football. I think uh, we're scoring the most goals, evidently. Um, we look really, really strong. 
at the right kind of time. I mean, we're at the end of February now, and I think March is going to be absolutely critical. If you look at the three title contenders, there are some big games in March. You've got Liverpool City. Mm. Uh, I think right at the end of the month, you've got City-Arsenal. I think City have got a Manchester derby as well mm-hmm. in that time frame. Um, just looking at Liverpool's fixtures for March as well. They're obviously balancing Europa League campaign. Um, they've got oh, they've got the Merseyside derby away from home. So it's a big, big month of football we're going into. But we couldn't really be going into it in better shape. No. If I, if I, I think I feel the need to sort of offer one caveat, which is that I think we have played, we have played some bad teams in this run um, and we've made them look even worse, but we have played some bad teams and there are definitely harder games on the horizon. Um, maybe not our next game, pretty confident about that one, but um, it, we've been superb and, you know, the players that are coming back, Gabriel Jesus, am I right in saying he was on the bench for this one? He was. We've got a question about him, so we'll... Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, the likes of Jesus, the likes of Partey, Tomiyasu, we're, we're being told they're close, they're close, they're close. But there hasn't been that sense of urgency, that sense of maybe rushing them. And I think that speaks to everyone's awareness that as good as this is right now, it's the next couple of months sure. that are the absolutely vital important. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think they are taking zero risks with, with any of these injured players. Yeah. Um, because March could be pretty uh, scant in terms of playing time because we play uh, we play Brentford, uh, Sheffield United on, on the Monday, and we've got like nine days or eight days or whatever yeah. it is. So like a good chance for those who've done a lot in the last few weeks to recharge their batteries and get the rubdowns and the massages and everything else, but also for some of these players, hopefully, to come back and be available for for this game against Sheffield United. Then there's Brentford on the 9th of March. And then, depending on what happens with um, Chelsea's FA Cup replay, the game that we're supposed to play against them on Saturday the 16th could be postponed. Yeah, most likely will be. I mean, Chelsea favourites, I think, to go through, aren't they? So, yeah, well, who knows with fucking Chelsea? But <laughs> well, well, we'll get we'll, to them. We'll get but to yeah, them. for example, in the same period of time, so you could be looking at... Um, you know, an Arsenal march with... Two games, uh, one, three games, you know, because games, there's um, yeah. there's an interlull as well. And then 31st of March, we play we play Manchester City away. Yeah. So there could be Four only three with the games. the Champions League, yeah. So, so it, it does mean then that that sort of run from March 31st through to the 19th of May, which is the end of the season, which could also include Champions League games, fingers crossed, mm. includes Champions League games, could be really, really hectic. You are talking literally every three or four days that we'll, we'll be playing a game of football. So we have to get those players back and we have to have the depth to cope with the games, the fatigue, you know, the, the injuries, the suspensions, whatever it might be. So I think that has played a part in, in the last few weeks. Yeah, and, and just again, referencing March being a big month, Liverpool have got six games in that month. Wow. You know? And when you think about their squad being as stretched as it is, um, we know we know ourselves what a Europa League campaign can be like to manage alongside mm. Premier League. Um, 
you know, they're going for a quadruple of sorts. So they're going to be really tested there. I just have a feeling that we're at the end of February now, we're looking really strong. I think at the end of March, we'll have a really clear idea of kind of, uh, yeah, where exactly we are. Okay. All right. Well, look, let's leave it there for part one. Uh, We've got plenty to do with questions and more in part two. We will do that right after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnablog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. James, we've had a special request for the first part of this, uh, for the first part of the second part. Is that right? Yes, exactly. The part within the part from Fever Pitch on Twitter. Uh, and Fever Pitch says, I'm assuming. Hashtag potch out will get a small section on the Arscast Extra tomorrow. I mean, I suppose you've got to give the people what they want. Yeah. You've got to so. give the people what they want. I mean, before we get into that, what did you make of of the game yesterday? Well, truth be told, um, I, was at a, I was at a baby rave. I was at another baby rave. And uh, there were a couple of Arsenal fans listening to the show there who – recognize me and can attest to that right um so they I was, also have raver babies yes exactly yeah I, it's it's you know it's predominantly for the parents who don't get to listen to drum and bass music anymore um <laughs> but it was good fun but it meant that i missed the vast majority of the game so i got home and turned it on in, in time for you know five minutes before the end of extra time in time for what i assumed was going to be a penalty shootout mm. uh lo and behold Within about 30 seconds, 
Virgil van Dijk had headed the ball into the back of the net, breaking Chelsea heart. Um, very funny. Very, very funny indeed. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very enjoyable, to be honest. And, and nice for, you know, Jürgen Klopp, that, he's had his moment now. That's they it. can let the Premier League go. You exactly, I mean? yeah. They can just be satisfied with what, you know, this is a this is a, a win for the Liverpool under-12s against Chelsea's. What did Gary Neville call them? The I'm not one for Gary Neville, as you know, but the billion-pound blue bottle jobs <laughs> is what he said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. So he went, he went all in, as did this particular Chelsea fan, who says, get this fat fucking loser out of my fucking club. <laughs> Hashtag potch out. <laughs> it's really enjoyable. This one's similar lines from Chelsea fan Mark. Has that RG pig been sacked yet? <laughs> London's first says, get the fuck out of the club, you fat spursy cunt. Fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. Potch out now. Oh, man. This one from Kevin, I don't understand, but I really enjoy it. He goes, he just says, he is not FFP. He just does not have it. Get him gone. Hashtag potch out. What does he is not FFP mean? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) This is good from Don Coolio because it sort of drags Spurs into it. When Klopp put on all those teenagers, he was conceding to the fact that he's losing this match. But Pochettino and his Spursiness just couldn't do it. (laughs) Every time players came back from a brief coaching session, in inverted commas, from Poch, they just came back even weaker. Hashtag Poch out. We're not winning anything with this Spurs manager. Folding against kids. This is Chelsea, not Spurs. Get him out now. Hashtag Poch out. Um, Shout out to the Honourable Malcolm Mwangi, as his name uh, calls him. It's a project. We need time. They are young kids. My foot! (laughs) Liverpool's team looks like it even touched the ball for the first time yesterday. Grandmas can even be coached by Klopp and still beat the 1B team. Potch out. He should go. He should go. All right, let's do one more from the master of disaster. Potch is spursy. Absolute imbecile bottle job. But it's the owners who hired this bottler. Clown Lake are the worst owners in world football. Hashtag Frappuccino out. Hashtag Clown Lake out. Hashtag Bowley out. Hashtag Potch out. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Listen, if you hire a Spurs manager, you know what you're going to get. What about this one? Mudrik didn't make it out of the Ukrainian ends just to get disrespected like this. Shake my head. Hashtag Potch out. Sad times. Sad Sad times. times. Okay. Um, oh, that was good fun. That was good fun. Okay, let's do some questions. And uh, let me start with this one from Plastic Nono mm-hmm. on the Discord. And he says, as fans and commentators of the sport, we are reluctant to use the words generational or world-class when referring to a player. But is it finally time to admit that Ben White is a world-class generational shithouser. Shithousing will never be the same after what Ben White has shown to us all. Yes, I mean, he is outstanding in that field. Um, 
And what's quite funny about Ben White is that he's quite unknowable. Sort of the only thing we really know about him is that he's a massive wind-up merchant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's quite fun. Uh, who was it that he... It, uh, it was Anthony Gordon, wasn't it? It was it's Anthony sort of- Gordon. It was. I was watching it back this morning. Gordon takes him out at one point. Um, it could have been in the build-up to that chance that uh, Saka and Odegaard create for Martinelli. And in the next passage of play, Ben White just comes right in behind him, clatters and leaves him on the ground. Gordon rolls over and, you know, thinks he's going to get a free kick and doesn't, which is, which is fantastic. And then mm. just before halftime, he did him again right on the halfway line. Um, one of those where the referee, you know, spoiled our fun and actually gave Newcastle a free kick. But I really enjoy that aspect of, of Ben White's, um, of Ben White's character and, the way he plays the game. And I, I I brought it up in a slightly jokey way, but also a semi-serious way, because before the game, there were questions to Mikel Arteta about the use of the, in inverted commas, dark arts. Were his players too nice? Were they not mean or nasty enough? And, you know, this is not something that the manager can really expand on in any great detail, is it? He's going, well, yeah, I'm going to tell them to to go out and you know, roughhouse the opposition or cheat or what, whatever you want to call it. He can't really say a lot about this kind of thing in public because, you know, as soon as you do, like Chris Wilder with um, referees and sandwiches, I presume every referee is just going to eat a sandwich in front of that guy for the rest of his fucking life. But... You know, you, you do have to have a bit of that about you as a team. You have to have some of the dark arts, some of the cynicism, some of the the gamesmanship, which we don't like when it's applied to us, but you have to be able to, uh, to engage in that kind of stuff. I think the best teams, regardless of the level of their talent, uh, their quality, their drive, their ambition, they all have some of this in there. And I think, you know, he's not the only one. Uh, I think others do it maybe a little more subtly at times. But, you know, he's like a beacon for this kind of stuff within this team. Yeah, I, I think the thing I really love about Ben White is that he is a footballer who really relishes the duel. Mm. Like, I feel like in every game, he knows who his opponent is. And he seems like he comes into it. In fact, I know he comes into it very prepared for that individual. Um, And it's almost that thing of like eyeing someone in the tunnel, you know, and being like, you're my guy and we're in this battle now for Mm. 90 minutes. And I think he, it's, it's very personal for him. I think he literally sees it as one V one. And those are the games that bring the best out of him. You know, when it's, a Wilfred Zaha or a Hyun Son or, you know, Anthony Gordon, whoever it is, someone who's up against him 1v1 and he's got to win that battle. I think that's when he really comes alive. Um, I think he loves it and he relishes it. And I think that's a great quality, for, particularly for a fullback to have. I agree, 100%. Um, I remember, uh, like, he does... He does get involved with players. Wasn't there like a thing with Phil Foden last season or the season mm. before? You know, he he won't back down. Um, and I love, you know, I love the idea of someone like Ben White who, by his own admission, doesn't watch football when football is, um, when he's away from football, you know, he does anything else. 
which is, you know, slightly at odds with what people think about, you know, how, how people who play the game and, you know, we, we all love the game. We watch as much football as we can, obviously. But he's like, no, that's it. But this is a job, but one he takes very seriously. So I love the idea of him sort of doing his homework, doing his preparation, you know, having to watch a bit of football, maybe <laughs> sitting down to watch a video of an opponent to, to understand where they're strong yeah. and how he can play against them. It's like, oh, I really don't want to do this, but I will because it's my job and I want to do my job as well as I can. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I, I'd go further than that. I think, I think he enjoys that. I think he enjoys the learning, the improvement, um, the, the coaching. I think he enjoys all of that. It's just that when he leaves the training ground, he does other stuff with his life. Uh, yeah, including his yeah. new dog. Do you see that? He's got a new dog. Got a new dog. Yeah, he's yes, getting right. German Shepherd as well. So he and Kai Havertz are, you know. Uh, they join the, the club. Part of the German Shepherd club. Yeah, well done, guys. The if they best. need any advice on caring for a German Shepherd. That's exactly it. Just get in touch. Drop me a line. I'd be happy to advise. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, okay. I had a couple of questions about uh, your friend of mine, Jakob Kivior. Uh, one slightly less serious and one slightly more serious. So uh, Ankit uh, Ragav said, take into account Kivior's recent performances What's the left-back pecking order right now, according to you guys? And Philosopher said, Good morning. Is Jakub Kivior our best ever fourth-choice left-back? <laughs> is he the fourth choice or is he the third choice? Well, who's ahead? Timber. Well, I think well, he's fourth if everyone's fit. Timber, yeah, Tommy Asu's in change. Maybe Timber, yeah. Okay. I, I, not that I'd forgotten about Timber, but we just haven't had the – Yeah. We haven't had him – for long enough for him to be considered uh, a particular choice, unfortunately, and hopefully that changes soon. But, you know, okay, including Timber, yes, by a long, long way, he is our best fourth-choice left-back. I mean, there was a time our second-choice left-back was Armand Traore, with all due respect to him. Yeah, that's not a... That's not a... Um, uh, a pecking order that can win you things. Um, no. But he's done, he has done really well. What was the first question again? Well, it was just about the pecking order. I mean, I'll throw this one into the mix as well. Gautam Batty on Discord said, Goodly morning, gents. Is Kivior on his way to cementing a place at left back, especially given how good Ben White seems to be in this new inverting and overlapping role over the last few games? This particular arrangement seems to have also brought out the best in Martinelli and Saka. I mean, it's working. It is working. It is working. It's just, you know, can it work in different ways? Or is it, you know, is this why it's working? Is that the only reason it's working? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but but certainly this is a team that is playing with a lot of confidence. The I go back to what I said last week about Arteta when he was talking about Kivior, um, you know, after the Fulham game, where he said it's his job to get the best out of everybody and not to put them in positions where they're uncomfortable. And I think what he has done with the structure of the team since we've come back from uh, that winter break is put players where they are most comfortable. And having done that, I think he's getting the reward of the performances that we've seen over the last few weeks. Like, I'm always loath to to sort of say, well, Kivior's played really well, therefore we should take Zinchenko out into the woods and just let him loose and drive off. 
you know? Yeah. I think there's an element of that with people. Like, this thing is working now, therefore it will work forever, and that's the only thing we should think about. And I, I don't really agree with that. I think, you know, Zinchenko is going to play games between now and the end of the season. Tommy Asu, I hope, is going to play games between now and the end of the season. Kivior will play games and play minutes between now and the end of the season. And maybe the selection decision at left back is tied into other things like, you know, is, um, you know, who's playing in midfield? Is it Jorginho on Rice or is it Rice at the base of the, you know, those kinds of things will impact who, who Arteta picks at mid, uh, at left back. So I really like what he's done. I'm delighted that he has settled in really well um, and looks, you know, very much an Arsenal player right now. But, um, yeah, let's just enjoy it for what it is at the moment. Um, and we'll see what happens as, as the rest of these games go on. So, I feel like if we did leave Zinchenko in the woods, he is the type of person that he would sort of come back as a kind of feral, like raised by wolves version of Zinchenko and take revenge on us all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like with fangs and claws, yeah. like naked running around, like, ripping out our throats. that That's kind of what I fear would happen. We better not do that, then. We better not do we, that. We better not do that. Can, we, can I just give one to the Real Arsenal Deal, who's at Real Arsenal Deal on Twitter, who says, just a shout-out to our recruitment last January, Jorginho, Kivior, and Trossard, two of which we pivoted to quickly after missing first-choice targets. Outstanding business by the club, and all have been crucial in this recent run. Yeah. Can't argue with that. I mean, there was a point, wasn't there, where where you were sort of looking at maybe even Trossard in this as well and and Jorginho and and Kivior where you're like, "Mm, are these guys just a bit too fringe? Mm. Are they just a little bit too much on the fringes? But I think they've all proved, um, you know, to be really, really important players um, over the last couple of weeks. Like, without Kivior, what the hell are we doing at left back? Yeah, I think they sort of illustrate two sort of major learnings one is that you shouldn't get too hung up on your first choice target you know your idea that there's no one else other than them out there um because you know we saw two top targets for arsenal on the pitch for chelsea yesterday and it's not worked out great for them Mm. um and the other thing is i think that there is value in buying squad players you know i think a lot of the time clubs think well, if I want to buy a left back, it's got to be someone who's going to start every single game. And it's like, well, no, you need depth and you need players who give you that depth. And I think Kivior, Jorginho and Trossard immediately gave layers to the squad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you don't want to do that all the time, but sometimes you need to do it. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you know, it, it, it was, it was, they were good pieces of business um, by and large. Mm. Um, bah, 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 bah. So, uh, Divang, Divyang Hong on Twitter says, Goodly morning, lads. I don't know if you've realised this, but we've played record-breaking football without Jesus, Zinchenko, Partey and company. Should we think the best is yet to come? Company? <laughs> and, comp- and co, he means. Ah, uh, okay. I was thinking, I mean... When he actually wrote and co, but I, for some reason, so I'd say company. Right. That would have made more sense to me, right? Because I immediately thought of Vincent Company. I was going, what? There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, I won't uh, undo abbreviations in future. And he, and Divyang says, should we think the best is yet to come? 
Or has Arteta unintentionally found the perfect formula for success? Sons, said players. I mean, I think like I just said, he's got the best out of the players that he has available to him right now. But if you ask me, as we go towards games, you know, like against Man City, we've got to go to Man United away, we've got to go to Tottenham away, we've got uh, Chelsea at home, uh, some difficult games. Do I want Zinchenko, Jesus, Partey, Timber, Tommy Asu back in the squad? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I think this is working now, but, you know, streaks come to an end and... Um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why you need to change your team and shift things around, maybe even tactically as well. So, again, enjoy this for what it is right now, but let's not uh, let's not ignore the fact that if if we are going to win the Premier League this season, it's still going to be a very very big challenge. I don't think there's any way we can do it without those players being back and playing some part between now and the end of May. Just don't, you know, this this team is is fantastic. This group of players deserve huge credit for what they've done over the last few weeks. But there's no way that they can sustain this without, you know, augmenting the team, either in-game or from the start or whatever it might be, with some of those other players that we've got because they're very good players. I mean, we had a question here from... Uh, Cormay, 4207... Uh, who referenced the podcast you did uh, a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Andrew Mitchell over injuries. And he said, after Dr. Mich- uh, Dr. Mitchell mentioning in the pod, sometimes players are on the bench knowing they won't actually be playing. Do you think Gabriel Jesus would have come on if it had been a close game? Or was he there to see how his knee does after Arteta's being cautious comments? I think if we'd really needed him in that last maybe 10 minutes of the game, he might well have been yeah. used. Emergency option, yeah. Yeah, emergency option, but but we didn't need him. And so I think the fact that he wasn't used tells you, you know, they don't feel he's quite ready yet. Um, mm. But it's good that he's close. It's good that he's close. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was positive that he was on the bench, if only um, for for that emergency option. I think the fact that we were 4-0 up. You know, I think if he was closer... He might have come on just to get a few minutes under his belt. True, yeah, yeah. You know, if 4-0, easy, go out there, have a run around and get some minutes. But um, they obviously didn't want to take any kind of risk. So, What about this from Matt Taylor? Goodly morning, gents. Is there a danger of Martinelli's morale falling? You can see his frustration when he's subbed consistently around the 60, 65-minute mark, where Osaka stays on until the game is safe, justifiably. Martinelli's role is more energy expending and dynamic, but is there a balance to find? I mean, I don't worry about his morale. No player likes to be substituted, of course. I think the the, the point about Saka staying on until the game is safe, who's making the game safe? Mm. He is. (laughs) You know, he's the one scoring the fourth or the fifth or the third, as he did last night. And I'm not taking anything away from Martinelli, who was really, really good the other night. He he had an assist for Havertz. He should have had two assists for Havertz. Could have scored himself a a couple of times as well. But yeah, I I just don't, I just don't think it's an issue at all. I don't worry about it. I I think he looked pretty happy on the bench, didn't he? Afterwards, he was chatting away to Ramsdale and Jorginho when he came off having a good laugh. Looked very happy afterwards. 
You know, if he wants to stay on, score the goals, I'm sure that will make the manager's job or decision to take him off a little more difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spoke about his reaction to the Havertz miss, and I do wonder if that, you know, <laughs> is a little bit connected to that thing of, you know, looking at his numbers and, and wanting to be a bit better. But I think yeah. there is a huge selflessness in the way that Martinelli plays, and he's given such a difficult mm-hmm. and very specific job in this team. Um, yeah, I sometimes think he doesn't get enough credit for that. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah I, I, I'm sure behind closed doors, you know, the manager will be giving him reassurance because he recognises tactically how important he is. Lagooner Grumpy on the Discord says, how much is Nicholas Yeover a genius and how much are players like Gabriel really good? Hmm. Uh, that's a really good question, isn't it? And it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know. I would guess... I would say that we had... Gabriel was scoring goals from set pieces before we had Nicholas Jova. Yeah. But I think we did have a set piece coach at the time. I think Andres Jorgsen was That's here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really don't know, Andrew. I really don't know. I think it's a little from column A, a little from column B. That's yeah. just... That's just how it has to be. I think what what we are blessed with with Gabrielle is probably the best. Um, can you call someone an attacking centre half? I'm not sure you can, but I think probably the most effective attacking central defender. That's wrong as well, isn't it? How do you define it? Like a central defender who's a very, very, very good defender but also yeah. extremely effective in the opposition final third. Like he yeah. provides more threat in the opposition box than pr- more than almost any other centre half I can think of. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I guess he's the, the centre half or centre bottom, uh, as we like to call them, <laughs> uh, who carries the most attacking threat, the most threatening bottom of them all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I, no, but he is. I mean, I, the, honestly, the only one I can think of, and it might be sort of recency bias, Van Dyke is very good. You know, he's very good. Mm-hmm. But Gabriel's comfortably outscored him in recent seasons. Um, Was it 14 goals? Something mad like that? Mm-hmm. What I would say is that we are scoring many more set-piece goals beyond Gabriel, you know, and... I know people like Kivior and Saliba are, are tall or whatever, but they're not as dominant or threatening aerially as a Gabriel. Um, so I think that shows that Yova's work is kind of extending beyond just Gabriel's individual mm. uh, athleticism and ability. But listen, it's yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's a mix of those things. We've got the routines, we've got the organisation, but when once that ball goes in, it's a battle. And you need someone who's going to win that fight, who's going to be the guy who runs the hardest, jumps the highest. Mm. And that's Gabriel. He's Um, that guy. He's that guy. He's our power bottom. He's our power bottom. Exactly that. So, uh, Rewa, is it Rewaj? I can't actually see. Yeah, Rewaj. Rewaj3 on the Discord says, Goodly morning, gents. This is a difficult one, I think. Who is the Declan Rice of the next transfer window? And who is the Granite Shaka? Oh, my God. 
I have no idea. I really don't. Because I've said this to you before, and, you know, I think a Declan Rice is a player who is going to come in for over £100 million, who's already well-established, high-profile, international player. I'm just not sure that's the guy that I don't know. You know, because it's the forward position that everyone's focused on, isn't it? And I just don't know if if we're going to get one of those players. Mm. Like, I don't, you know, again, I don't think it'll be a, a Tony or an Aussie man or... I think it'll be someone else. And who will be the who will be the grand like the granite jacket that we signed under Arsene Wenger or the granite jacket that I think they mean the granite jacket as in the first team player that will be sold as part of the evolution. Ah. That's how I took it anyway. Okay, okay. Um like I I don't envisage us selling anyone who is a you know a real first team regular yeah um like players i think could go this summer are Partey, smith rowe nelson and kedia cedric um ramsdale maybe mm-hmm. um you know as, as players who could depart but are any of them really mainstays of the first team i'm not sure so, yeah. I mean, Partey, maybe if, if available, you would say, would fit into that category. He would be but... certainly adjacent to that, yeah. So I'll yeah. say him as, as the as the high-profile guy who could go. As for who is going to be the signing, I've got no idea. Do you fancy venturing a guess at that one? Well, it's, do you know what? It's interesting. Declan Rice, we already knew about the interest and how serious it was in Declan Rice at this point a year ago. Yes, that's true. Uh, in fact, more, it was. I think it was late January it was kind of right before the transfer deadline um because I remember you know the Mudrick went to Chelsea and uh, uh then the Rice story came out and people thought those facts were connected which they actually weren't it was pure coincidence but um you know there's no one no one name rather that's being talked about in that same way as the kind of no-brainer number one target that we desperately need mm. Um, did you did you see Edu's interview on yeah. TNT? And he was asked, yeah, I think it was Ferdinand was asking him about, you know, the forward. Are you going to get the forward that the fans want? And he said something, you know, we're making plans and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if we weren't scoring goals or making chances, this would be a bigger, I'm paraphrasing, you know, it would be a bigger issue. But we're scoring lots of goals. That's not really the issue. I wonder if, like, a high-profile signing might come in a position where we don't necessarily expect it. And, you know, it wouldn't be at all surprising to me if that was a defensive signing. Wow, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I think obviously there's going to be a central midfielder brought in, obviously, because, uh, you know, Elneny will go. I think Partey will go. I'd hang on to Jorginho. Um, and I'd extend him if he was open to extending his contract for another year. He's a player that I would definitely keep around, but we would need another another player in there, and I think that might be a high-profile signing too. Certainly, um, some of the names, at least, that have been mentioned would, would, um, would cost a few quid, but like if we signed a left-back, I wouldn't be at all surprised. No, I, well, I mean, I, I think we will. 
I think we will. And that sort of feeds into my answer, I suppose, in that if you're asking me for like a Declan Rice, well, what was Declan Rice? He was a very expensive midfield player uh, with lots of Premier League experience. He was kind of a known quantity. Um, I don't think this will happen, but, you know, I could throw the name of Douglas Louise, for example, in there. He's having a brilliant season at Villa, one of the best midfielders in the Premier League, Um, uh, like to Arsenal you know, would cost a lot of money, mm. but you'd, you'd know what you were getting from him, could play a variety of midfield roles. I, I, I could see that. I, I don't think it will happen because I think Villa's price will be too high. And yeah. I don't think Arsenal, will, you know, admire him quite as much as they did someone like Rice. Um, but, you know, it's a possibility. And then for, for the the Shaka, uh Again, this is sort of more my deduction than information, but I do think the Zinchenko one might be one to watch just in terms of Mm. kind of where he is in his contract. I think he's got maybe two years left uh, as of this summer. So it's kind of a point where you sort of have to decide really on a player. You have to be like, are we going to extend him or are we going to sell him? Um, And... Just given, you know, given the way that role sort of seems to be evolving in front of our eyes a little bit, it wouldn't surprise me if Arsenal went for like a big upgrade or someone who is sort of stylistically different, mm. maybe in that area of the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, me either. Okay, well, let's but, see. Uh, but listen, I really like Zinchenko and I don't say that to sort of, you know, no, no, ha- no, but have a pop at him. No, but no, no. Granit Xhaka I... was one of our best players last season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I look. It, it's it's all about trying to logically deduce what might happen mm. um, with the squad and where it might be upgraded. And you know, as as well as Kivior has done, it has required a tactical shift in in other areas of the pitch. And maybe uh, the manager might feel someone perhaps more physically reliable in that area could be could be part of the the package so let's see anyway it's, it's all still to come let's have a couple of quick ones just to finish um uh on the discord fabregasted said last year arsenal were looking over their shoulder when the pressure was on now while the pressure is still on they're chasing instead i think it suits them what are your guys thoughts on this and there was another one from so many fucking windows open here. With where are my Tweety ones gone? Uh, it comes from Will Williams, who's at Will Will nine 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 something on Twitter, and he says, "How much of an advantage do you think it is that the press are largely discounting our title challenge? Presumably, this will mean we have more mental energy in the final furlong." Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think it probably does suit us right now. And it probably prohibits the kind of narrative and conversation of, oh, are Arsenal going to choke again? Yeah. You know, which which I think would be there if we were the front runners at this point in time. Um, indeed, we were the front runners at Christmas and there was a lot of that talk. Um, so I think it probably does suit us. I think it would be better if we were chasing one team rather than two, you know, <laughs> um, you only rely, you only need one to slip up in that case. Whereas we kind of need City and Liverpool to, to go off the boil a bit. But for now, yeah, just sort of lurking on the shoulder. It's not a bad position to be in, is it? No, 
No, I think you're right. It, it it instantly removes that. And I think there does come a little bit of pressure with that in and of itself, even if it's slightly reductive, isn't it? You know, to, are Arsenal going to choke? Will they choke? You know, I don't think it's choking when you're overtaken by a by a machine like Manchester City, you know, and when you've got real reasons for your performance levels to, to sort of or real explanations as to why your performance levels dropped off because of a couple of really uh, unfortunate injuries. So I don't think it was a choke or anything like that, but it does remove it. Yeah, I mean, let them set the pace and let's, you know, come out top in the final sprint. So uh, I think it's different, and this season was always going to be different, and it's a it's a different challenge to, to try and overtake not one, as you say, but two teams. It's going to be extremely difficult, but... Um, you know, I'm excited by, I'm excited by what's to come. You know, because I think the development of this team is um, is really impressive and really exciting. So I'm hopeful uh, that we can go the distance. Um, let me do this final one, which is aimed at you. For me. For you. It comes from the Discord from Stickers. He says, "Goodly morning, gentlemen." He said, "Before the game." I shouted, let's do this. And the game went well. So I decided to see how this would work in other aspects of my life. After the game, I was lacing up my sneakers for a run and shouted, let's shoot this. And then went on an excellent run farther than I'd run in years. I came home and cleaned up, then went out to do my errands. I went to the bank to manage some accounts and shouted to the banker, let's accrue this. She then set me up with a very high yield savings account, much higher than my previous one. After my errands, I came home and had to use the bathroom. I shouted, let's poo this and had a nice relaxing BM. Then I took my kids to the park, which was very crowded with children. They were all running around yelling like idiots as kids do but I yelled let's cue this and they all lined up and played nice and orderly that night after my wife and I put our kids to bed I whispered in her ear let's woo this we then proceeded to make love seven times the greatest night of our lives our marriage has never been better so have I gone too far or is this a new way of life wow well, uh, I'm honoured to have sort of been the catalyst to this change in, in this guy's life. Um, I, well, all I can say is I'm off to the trademark office uh, to try and copyright all of those terms. All the variations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, look, we had better leave it there for this particular episode. As ever, thank you so much uh, for being with us. We really appreciate you listening and downloading and sharing and all the rest. Just a quick shout as well. Uh, you'll find a link in the show notes uh, to our, our new Arsblog and Arsblog News WhatsApp channel, uh, which you can subscribe to. And we do various updates you can actually, I discovered this, I, I didn't think you could get notifications, but you can if you want. They're they're off by default, but if you want to turn them on, when we send a WhatsApp update, it'll uh, give you a link to the latest podcast or news items or whatever it might be. You can get that popping up on, on your WhatsApp. So you'll find the link to the WhatsApp channel in the show notes. Uh, we'll talk to you a bit later. Uh, we'll talk to you a bit later in the week for now. Take it easy, folks, and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.